Welcome to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the podcast where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about everything from food to travel and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so come on with me and let's do this. Welcome back. Today's guest is Dan Pashman. Dan is just super awesome. I love his podcast, The Sporkful. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. It is partnered with Stitcher, used to be with WNYC. Basically, in the world of podcasts being this new trend and a ton of podcasts coming out, Dan is the real deal. He has been in the podcast game for so long, and he kills it. So the Sporkful is like his main thing, but he also has a TV show on the cooking channel called You're Eating It Wrong. He's also got a book called Eat More Better. Like me, he started in journalism, and then his passion for food kind of took the reins. And so in this conversation, we talk about how to channel your ideas. If you have an idea or a passion for something and then kind of what you do next, what are your next steps? We cover all kinds of stuff. We talk about the role that fear plays in motivation and kind of just getting things done. It's going to be a really good episode. Please stick around. But first, before we talk with Dan, a quick note from our sponsor. Mmm, ice cream. You may think summer is ending, but it's still ice cream season in New York. How about flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream? Malai Ice Cream is a South Asian-inspired spice-forward ice cream company in New York City that's building out its first brick-and-mortar store in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. In the meantime, they have a pop-up store, Monday through Friday, 5.30 to 9.30 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday, noon to 10. So swing on by in Cobble Hill to grab a scoop. If you mention this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order. The Malai pop-up is at 268 Smith Street in Cobble Hill, and it'll be going on through the rest of 2018 until its grand opening next year. Hours and flavors will be announced on their Instagram at Malai underscore ice cream. That's M-A-L-A-I. So, you know, that Malai spot actually makes me think of an episode that Dan Pashman did on The Sporkful all about ice cream etiquette. He covers so many things, anything related to food. He has a lot of comedians on his show, Michael Ian Black, for instance, and they talked about salads and men eating salads. I mean, he also had Joseph McNeil on, who was one of the Greensboro Four, that group of guys in the 1960s during the civil rights era that staged a sit-in at a restaurant and basically changed the game in terms of segregation in restaurants all around around the country. So he talks to such a variety of people on such a variety of topics. And I love it because it just goes to show what a connector food can be. And I have to take a moment to thank our mutual friend who introduced us many years ago, Win Rosenfeld. Thank you for knowing that us two food obsessives would hit it off. Also, fun fact, all of you out there, Win played a key role in my husband Connor and I getting together. So, when I have many things to thank you for. All right, now I'm going to shut up and I'm going to get to the interview with Dan because it rocks. So, enjoy. Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Hi. Hey, what's up, Katie? <laughs> what's up, man? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming to my office to talk. Dude, this is super clutch. So, we're in a really nice audio studio but not using the nice audio gear. <laughs> this, is a, this is a great move, though. I've done the exact same thing you're doing right now. Many times, like, show with my recorder. I'm like, I just need a quiet room. And they're like, we have this padded room, <laughs> but it's a radio studio, not for insane people. Right, right. Um, it's only a $100,000, right, like, right, right, right. studio equipment. And I'm like, well, can I set up this rinky thing that I have? Like, you got a nice, your, your recorder's fancier than mine. That's very nice. <laughs> you got four channels there, Katie. I know, right? Let's get two other people in here so we can use all four <laughs> yeah, of the exactly. channels. 
first, I don't know if it was when we first met, but when we first recorded together, it was for the Sportful. And it was in the Now This News office and it was the control room. <laughs> that's I forgot. I mean I forgot that's where we were. In my memory the room was very dark. Was that room very dark? Yes, it was. Yes. Yes. Your chosen form of interviewing is super conversational, friendly, like a like a pal talking about life and right. food and things. <laughs> How did you come upon that style? I guess to some degree I like to think that that's sort of like part of my personality that I like always Prided myself on being the kind of person that could like find common ground with anyone, and you could kind of like drop me into any situation, and I would be able to like to make friends. Um, but you know, executing that on a microphone is different from ex- doing it in, at a barbecue in real life. Hugely different. It's like you kind of have to learn to like perform the role of yourself, and yeah, you're right. You know, and it's sort of like. So it's a slightly idealized version of yourself. You know, it's always a challenge, as you know, from being a good interviewer. It's like you, it, you're you doing multiple things at once. Like you have to be thinking about what's the next question and where is all this going. You, have to be, you also have to be listening very carefully and thoughtfully and responding in the moment to what pre- people say. I always go back and forth about how many questions and how many notes to prepare for, for an interview because I find that like if I prepare too little, then I feel nervous going in like I like to have a plan but if I prepare too much then there's also stress because you start to feel like oh wait I haven't gotten to all the things I need to get to and then you end up not listening yeah well yeah because you're like while the other person's talking you're like oh crap I still have these 18 things on my list so right it becomes a checklist right to check right and you got I you know and that's happened to me a few times and I started really try to avoid that like right. I don't prepare too much and then I don't look at my notes too much it's sort of like prepare it read through it a few times and then kind of like crumple it up and throw yeah. it in the garbage yeah right? but I do think Think of you as as just a consummate pro at what you do. No oh, thanks. And that you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were into this whole podcasting thing and kind of owning your space in the podcast realm way before podcasts were as big of a thing as they have become, as they are now. Yeah, I mean, I launched the Sporkful in January of 2010, so. Uh, nearly nine years, coming up on our nine-year anniversary. I think that part of the reason why my approach is different from a lot of people in podcasting, not not all for sure, but like I'm a radio person first, like an audio person, and then I sort of fell into food. So it was like I wanted to have a podcast. What should my podcast be about? And, I, and it ended up being food because that was like the only area where I thought I had a halfway decent idea of what the show, what show it would, what the show would be. Really? So like I, I was a producer in radio for many years. I worked at Air America Radio, which is like a progressive talk radio network with like Mark Marin and Al Franken and Jeanine Garofalo and Rachel Maddow. And then I worked at NPR for a number of years in Sirius XM. And, and friends of mine from those worlds were starting podcasts. And they were like, you should start a podcast. This is the future. And I was like, yeah, that's probably right. It probably is the future. But what can my podcast be? So I brainstormed ideas. And the Sporkful was kind of like the only the only decent idea I had. It's, but And I'm glad it's the thing that stuck. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. But it, it's like I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a uh, objectively good or bad thing. But it's definitely... The fact that I'm an audio person first who happens to do food informs my perspective. It means that in some respects, like, I know a lot less about food and cooking than you do. Like, you went and trained at Le Cordon Bleu. So here's the thing. I was nodding my head in agreement, though, with what you were saying before because I was in video first and foremost before I started doing food. And so it's actually a parallel there. But then, yeah, at a certain point I was like, uh, I don't actually know what I'm talking about. And so I went to culinary school to try and erase the imposter syndrome creeping in my brain. Right. Something that I love 
about you, your brand, your show, is this openness. So I think, I mean, for you, it works for you that you don't have this, like, I am a graduate of la da culinary school. Right. Because you're you're like, yo, everyone has a credible opinion. Your slogan that you say at the beginning of every podcast, it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. We obsess about food to learn more about people right there right up front so i think it works for you actually and and helps you relate to people i like to think so i mean you know i i went into it feeling like i'm never gonna be a great chef i'm not gonna try to compete in the world of like recipes and restaurants like there's other people out there who are really good at that I don't have anything to add. So yeah, so that was sort of by by design that like I I felt like like I don't really want to lose that, you know, but but there are times that I feel like I should know how to make a roux. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any strategy behind who you ask to be on the podcast? You tackle the variety. Is there a strategy behind behind that? Yes and no. I mean, the short answer is like I have a short attention span. I get bored <laughs> with things easily. I would get very bored if I was doing the same thing every week. There is a strategy in the sense of like don't do the same thing over and over again. The strategy is don't have too much of a strategy. You know, like follow what is inter- what seems interesting. Like follow your curiosity. Yeah. And just I try to let my curiosity and my producer Anne who has a you know big say in what we do and her curiosity and the things we're interested in and we're not interested in pretentious food we're not interested hardly ever in chefs we're interested in people I have a special interest in comedians comedians are often really great guests and they often love to eat I mean everyone loves to eat most people but they're also good at talking about it and being funny and entertaining and open but really like there's no question or topic that you can't get to through food so we'll do stories that are really at their heart, like economic stories or religion, social or politics, justice, social yeah. justice, culture, you tackle comedy, everything. humor, yeah. uh, science, whatever it is. Like you can get to any one of those things through food. And so, you know, it's just sort of like you just have to learn over time to be like sensitive to the things you're interested in. Like people are always like, how do you come up with all your ideas? It's like the world is full of ideas. Yes. Like you tripped on three ideas on your way in today. Yeah. You know, it's you just have to learn to notice them when you trip on them. Right. And train yourself to be in the habit of being like, oh, I just tripped on an idea. As opposed to just stand, it's brushing your pants off and continuing down the street. Isn't that fascinating that it's all about kind of your receptiveness to things? It's the, the theory of the universe of abundance, right? If you believe that the universe is abundant versus scarce, you are more likely to notice those ideas that you trip into. But you must run into the same thing. I mean, you cover a wide range. Like, how do you decide what you want to do between your videos and your podcasts and all your different projects? Yeah, it is inspiration everywhere I look. My list is headachingly long of video ideas. Right. But that's good. Like, that's a good sign. It's not a problem. Right. 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 It's not a problem. The hard part is executing the ideas. Right. Coming up with ideas is the fun part. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, then it's not hard to think of things to talk about. So when you began The Sporkful, you were passionate about what you were doing. You had a ton of things to talk about. But I feel like you were a little more specific in the format of the show, the the people you had on, what you talked about. You would take something very specific, like I'll take our episode together as an example. Falafel. Falafel. Yeah, you remember. Of course. <laughs> nice. and, and just like 
dive into we it. We would talk about like what's the ideal number of falafel balls and a pita and the ratio the and the ra- different toppings and the fillings and how should they be stacked and, and texturally, right? Yeah. Getting falafel in every bite and the mm-hmm. you know right right how much tzatziki sauce and exactly yeah, <laughs> all yeah. those fun things. Yeah, that that was the original concept of the sport. Right. Fall. So how, tell me about the evolution from that beginning point. Well, I did that for a couple hundred episodes. Yeah, you stuck with it. And we did some good ones. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, at a certain point, I was like, okay, like I feel like we're hitting the end of, of where this can lead creatively, and I'm interested in doing different things, and I wanted the show to get more serious and thoughtful. I wanted it to resonate with people more deeply on a more personal level. So that was the first thing, was just like, like I, I, knew, I knew I wanted that. So I wanted the show to get more personal. And then I just wanted to broaden it and get it to be more nerdy and more different, just like do more of everything. And just, you know, part of it was it was just me doing the, you know what this is like, you know, like I'm amazed that you're able to do your videos and and everything you do on social media, like so much of it, like 10 years ago, what you do would have required a team of like a dozen people. It may still require one. At least a couple people. Right, right. (laughs) You know, but like basically on your laptop out of your apartment, but it's like, um, you know, when the, when the show got big enough that I was able to have a full time producer working with me, that made a big difference. Was it, it Anne from the get go? It was a woman named Kristen Meinzer who is now at Panoply, and she does a couple great podcasts there. She does one called By the Book, which went to Greenberg. She does one about the royal wedding, which I guess probably ended after the royal wedding, but um, <laughs> it was yeah. a limited run series. Yeah, right, right. But shout out to Kristen; she's awesome. She got me up and running when I was at uh, New York Public Radio at WNYC, and then Anne took over about three years ago, four years ago. That just like allowed me to get into a lot of new ideas that like I had in the back of my head, but like we just couldn't execute. Um, and then like, just sort of like, there's been so many conversations around uh, identity and culture and race happening in our country and, and gender happening in our country right now. And food is a really good way, I think, to have some of those conversations. And I knew that I wanted to get more into that also. And so you know, we've been doing that more and more as well. I am amazed by the way that you tackle some really deep issues and and d- divisive issues. I really think of you as a master in this way because I imagine that your listeners are all across the board. The way that you approach a subject, the way that you talk about a subject and like you are not devoid of opinion. Like you'll state your opinion, but you don't ostracize people who feel differently than you. I just think that you are a master at it. Oh, that's nice. I mean, I yeah, it's by design. I mean, to you know, uh, we're not having white supremacists on. You know, so uh, there are certain people I ostracize. <laughs> yeah, but 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 right. <laughs> but I, but I, but I get what you're saying. But you're, you're right. And like you know, I came up in public radio and worked in news, and so I I sort of think that, that the sporkful is like some episodes are more journalistic in nature than others. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends. We have, I have the luxury of being a journalist when I want to be. Yeah, I think that sometimes in in what I would call old-fashioned journalism. They get very hung up on the rules. To me, the most important thing is the relationship with your audience. Having trust, building trust. And the best ways to build trust are to be honest and fair and open and direct with your audience. And sometimes that means letting people know what you really think. And it also means giving different people an opportunity to speak. You know, And I don't agree with every single thing every person we have on the show says. But if they're on the show, it's at least because I think that they're a thoughtful person. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think you got to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes. You know, not and not just like in a cliched, perfunctory, superficial way. Like, really take a minute 
and think about what someone else's life is like and what events have what experiences they've had that have caused them to feel they the way they do about a certain issue. And if you actually really take the time to do that, all human beings should do, but especially if you want to interview people, that's something I always really like meditate on before I speak with someone. You you should be able to open yourself up to their point of view. Even if you don't end up agreeing, at least you can have enough empathy that you can have a good conversation. And that to me I think is one of the something that I really strive for always is is to listen thoughtfully and and be open to what other people have to say. And to have a good conversation and to ask the difficult questions that make a good conversation. So, for instance, you recently had on Tom Ryan. He is the guy who came up with stuffed crust pizza and the McGriddle. And you asked him what I'm guessing a lot of your listeners, including myself, were wondering, which is, like, this guy has made some of the most unhealthy, like, when you think of, like, American food, so unhealthy, blah, like, it's kind of the things he's created, and they have their place, they're great, but it's also, like, how much have you contributed to obesity? And you asked the question. My curiosity was right there, and you gave it words. Did you have any hesitation? About asking. Not not in that case, because that guy is a, you know, he's the CEO of a big corporation. Like, he gets interviewed. Like, he needs to be able to have a decent answer to that question. But that interview is a good example because, like, yes, on one hand, this guy has created some very unhealthy foods. So if I'm going to have him on, I need, I'm going to ask him, what's the deal with, like, how do you feel about that? But also, like, you know, he went to university, to Michigan State, I think it was, like, and he got a, a, a PhD in flavor chemistry. Like, he's a giant nerd <laughs> at heart. And so... Which is something you can relate right, to. Right, which is something I can totally relate to. And, and, and when you actually talk to him, like, you see his eyes light up when he starts talking about, like, the Maillard reaction and, like, the experiments in the lab when they created the stuffed crust pizza. So he's a very shrewd businessman and a salesman, and you have to, like go in understanding that he has his own agenda, but also he's a nerd who's really interested in food science and gets a lot of joy from playing in his lab. And the truth is that the stuffed crisp pizza is a brilliant idea. Yes, it's not healthy. Like, there's probably a more healthy way to do it. But, like, I'm fascinated by the way big food companies develop foods, the R&D process and the research, the focus groups, the studies. Like, I think that stuff is super interesting, and it has a big impact on what we eat. So... Yeah, like I'm also gonna. I also was very excited to nerd out with him on the inner workings of food science and burgers, and because you know he runs Smash Burger. Yeah, that's right. So like burger science and toppings and 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 the development process, and then also ask him the hard questions. So it's like I'm not gonna vilify this guy as a complete and total monster, because he had a role in creating these foods, but I'm also not gonna not ask him about it. You know, it's like seeing all parts of his humanity. Have you ever felt uncomfortable asking a hard question? Yeah, I mean, I, as I've gotten more experience, I'm less, I'm, I'm more comfortable. Like in the, my early days, if I had to ask an uncomfortable question, I would have been like stuttering for 10 minutes before I like could get the words out. And then it would probably come out in a very circuitous way so that half the listeners wouldn't understand what I was even asking. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've gotten better at just saying it very directly. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, the, in some of the food and race conversations, you know, especially because, like, I'm a white man. Yeah. Sometimes I'm speaking with people of color whose experiences are different from mine, and I'm trying to understand what their experience is like. And I try very hard to put myself in their shoes as best as I can. But, I mean, obviously I can only do that so well. Usually when I go through that exercise for myself, I'm able to understand how some, to, to a point, understand how they could feel about something. But once in a while, I really struggle. 
to be like, oh, I just don't understand why I don't get it. You don't ever want to tell anyone that they're wrong to feel the way they feel about anything. And, and, and I don't feel that any, any of the people I've interviewed have been, quote unquote, wrong. It's just that I struggle to understand. And so when you are pushing someone to, to help you to understand why they feel the way they do, you, you know, you want to do it in a way that's sensitive. You don't want to, you know, you don't, my, my goal is not to say that they're wrong, but it is to push them to explain enough that I can gain and hopefully listeners can gain a deeper understanding. There's an example that comes to mind, and I hope if it's all right with you, I'm going to put a little clip of it in. It was a live episode you did with Hari Kondabolu, the comedian. Yeah. Here's another one that I was very curious to chat with you about. And this, you know, when I, when I talk, especially when we get into these conversations of food and culture and identity and with people of color, there's a couple of of frustrations that I've heard expressed from multiple guests we've had on this portfolio. One is the whole issue of like when people meet you and say, where are you from? Mm. And then the other one is when people relatively quickly in getting to meet you want to talk about Indian food. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> the where are you from one, I can very easily wrap my brain around why that's offensive. Because it suggests like that you must that you're not, that you're somehow not American or less American, and I can understand if someone literally walks up to you and says, "Hey, nice to meet you. I love chicken tikka masala too." Mm. That's uh, that's a little weird and reductive. But but I do, I will be if I'm being honest. I will say that sometimes when I meet a person of color, especially because I'm passionate about food, that is an area where I look for common ground. It's not the very first thing out of my mouth. That's but, key. But but but, it, but but it's also it's also not like it's also not necessarily. I will admit that sometimes I direct the conversation there quickly because it's something that I know that I feel comfortable talking about and think that it's an area of common ground. So I don't necessarily exactly wait for it to come up organically. What would you talk to me about? Like if you were in that situation and you want to bring it up, what would you bring up? Give me, like, an example. Well, let's say we were chatting a little bit. Oh, where'd you grow up? Oh, you grew up in grew Queens? Up in, I grew up in Queens, New York. Oh, man, there's so much great food in Queens. Yeah, Queens has a, a great range of food. I, uh, I, I hear, I, w- I love to get um, Indian food in Queens. You know a good place where I can get some Indian food? Now, at this point, a joke is forming in my head for a future show. I just think that that's an excellent example of the way that you can tackle some of these really tricky political, if you will, like topics. Yeah, and, and Hari was a great guest, and he was very gracious and, and did help me to understand better. But it was, it was a, you know, a, a difficult conversation, you know, but I think that makes, it, makes for a better show. Yeah. We had, we had a, one of our early attempts to get into issues of race and culture and food more seriously was a series we did called Other People's Food. Got into a lot of like cultural appropriation issues, and I interviewed Rick Bayless, who's like a pretty well-known chef. I remember in that Chicago. episode. Uh, and he does Mexican. He cooks Mexican food, um, and and but he, he's white uh, from Oklahoma, I think. So I wanted to talk to him, like, and he's very successful, and he's runs very successful restaurants, and he's made a lot of money cooking Mexican food. Now, if anyone can stand up to the criticism of, you know, that comes along with that. It's Rick Bayless because he didn't just like rip, you know, drive in one day and, and start cooking Mexican food. Like he lived in Mexico for years. He's fluent in Spanish. He's traveled all over the country for years and years, knows it intimately, goes every year, studies and learns and has great respect. He's an appreciator of the cuisine. Right. And, and, and someone who has put in a lot of time and hard work 
to learn the cuisine and the culture and the language. So if anyone can stand up to that criticism, it's Rick Bayless, but still he gets the criticism. And I wanted to know how he felt about that. And I, in particular, I asked him if he feels that he has benefited in his career from being a white man. And he said he had never thought about that before. You know, but that was an awkward exchange. And, yeah. and that was, I, I was, I was flummoxed in that exchange in that moment because I couldn't believe that was, I was just shocked that, that was his answer, first of all. Like, this guy's a media professional. He's on television. Like, you'd think, like, bullshit me a better answer than that, Rick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least. Right. I'm much, much less successful than he is. And I still have thought about the ways that I've benefited from being a white man. And, and, and I don't, haven't spent my career doing something that was created by people of color. Whatever. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm ranting. But, you, you know, uh, anyway, there was a lot of stuttering in that conversation. I stuttered a lot because I was like, what the heck am I supposed to be saying to this guy? You clearly go about everything that you do with this journalist's frame of mind. And that has become evident in this conversation thus far. You were actually in print journalism before you got into audio, right? Yeah, I mean, the two kind of came about the same time. Okay. You know, even going back to college, I wrote for the newspaper and did college radio. When I graduated, I had a, a part-time job at an internet radio station, which was, this was before smartphones. So this what? was something you listened, streaming through your computer. Ahead of the time. Yeah, you can, there's no surprise why that didn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like, wait, radio that you can only listen to through a desktop computer? <laughs> yeah, that's not going far. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but I did recognize that digital audio was the future. I was a little too far ahead, I guess. I'll go ahead and say too far ahead instead of just <laughs> a, a, a waste of time. Right. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> so was it a, a strategic decision when you decided to go full-fledged down the audio podcast path? It wasn't strategic. That was just what I was what I liked better. Okay. I, I was I was like you know writing is something that I like when I'm excited to write about something, but like I like talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just that's just what I like better. Okay. So did you have? any idea that podcasts would take off as they have and that your career would be able to become such a robust thing based on an audio show? I mean, it would be, I can't say that I had no idea because like this was the goal. You know, this is the goal that I set out with. I wasn't sure it would work, but I, I clearly, I had some idea that it might work or I wouldn't have set out with it. I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that, yes, okay, The Sporkful is your main thing, but you also have a television show, you've got a book. So you do more than just this. You And so you have dipped your toes or, you know, whole foot, feet into other things. Right. And right. I think that that's important to acknowledge, but still your main... Yeah, the podcast is my yeah. baby. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but but... I started my own podcast because, like, it was my dream to work in radio. It was my dream to eventually be on the radio someday. And I was getting to, working different jobs as a producer, a reporter, or whatever on different uh, the places I mentioned, NPR and Air America and blah, blah, blah. And I got laid off, like, six times in eight years. Every show I worked on got canceled. Oh, yeah. Partly because I mean, some of them weren't so good. 
Some of them were good, but it was I, I was coming of age with the the rise of technology that was creating so much tumultuousness in media in general. Two major recessions that hit between the time the first ten years I graduated out, out of college. That's some bad timing, dude. right? So <laughs> between those two factors, there was a lot of layoffs and a lot of shows that got canceled. And so the Sporkful really represented my like last ditch effort to have a career doing the thing that I love. So you know, desperation is a powerful motivator. Fear is a powerful motivator. The fear of having to, of, of ending up in a career that isn't, isn't going to make you as happy. So that, you know, that will keep you up late at night working hard or get you up in the middle of the night sometimes to work hard. So like, yeah, that, this was the goal. The goal was like, someday I want to have a career hosting some kind of audio thing that I love. And that was my goal 20 years ago. So it's amazing that it's actually happened and happening. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. That's really freaking exciting and amazing. So, like, I'm very lucky. And I do think it's important to take a moment to say, hey, look where I am. That's awesome. But I'm sure you're thinking about the future. You're constantly innovating with the kinds of shows you're doing and the formats you're doing them and live and recorded and all this stuff. What do you see for the future? The Sporkful is my baby. Right now, I still love doing it. I foresee that being like the hub of my work for a long time to come, I hope. My mom was teasing me because, like I said, I had all these layoffs. You know, She's like, you're like one of these kids who like grew up in the Depression, like always expects there to be another Depression. So I, I always kind of expect that like one, like the next recession is going to hit and like we're all going to be out on the street. But, you know, that doesn't usually happen. Right. And I think and at it this just point, makes you work harder in the meantime. Right. I mean, look, it's good. A certain amount of fear is good. Totally. Uh, I don't think it's good to be too comfortable in what you do. Right. Too much is not good, but some is good. And so I think I have that. And whether it's fear or ambition or some combination of the two, and you know, that will drive you. So I love doing the live stuff. I'd like to keep doing that. I mean, I, I would like to be able to go on the road more and do more sporkful tapings from around the country, around the world. You know, I love following your travels all over the place. I'm like, oh, man, Katie's so lucky that she has no kids. I know. Well, that's kind of what it comes down to. Connor and I are like, now's the time. Yeah, seriously. Get it done. Travel, travel. My kids are just getting old enough now that we can travel, but still, it's not the same. I also just think in general, like in any creative pursuit, you know this from your work, it's like, well, there's two things that I think happen. One is people put limitations on themselves sometimes without realizing it. You think like, well, this is what I do. And so this is what I have to do. Listeners come to expect or your audience comes to expect a certain thing and then you feel pressure to deliver it. But if you're constantly changing and doing different things, then people come to expect that. Mm. And so do that. <laughs> so you don't, you know, so you don't get bored. But also you got to have the courage of your convictions. Like, you know, when we first started, the show first started evolving, I got emails from people who were like, I miss the old show, you know. Right. But it's like, you know... You can say that you missed the old show that I did 200 and something episodes of that format of like dissecting the tiniest details of falafel or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, if I was still doing that now, another 200 episodes later, you wouldn't still be listening. Right. Because I'd be bored yeah. and you'd be bored. Things evolve for a reason. Right, right. So it's like you can say you missed that and I'm sure you do. And I, I'm. it's nice that you like that. You know, you can sign up for the archives. It's just $30 <laughs> a year and listen as much as you want. I'm proud of those shows. But like if I was still doing those, they wouldn't be good. Right. I can... 100% relate because I started with just doing like recipe videos in my Brooklyn kitchen and have branched out so much yeah. since then. And I still, to this day, five years later, get commenters saying, I miss the simple recipe videos. I still do them sometimes, but I would be so bored out of my mind if that's all I did anymore. Totally. So, well, also, like, is the is the world suffering from a shortage of recipes? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Seriously. Is that an issue? <laughs> is that a like, thing? Yeah. <laughs> like, just Google that recipe. Like, yeah. like, just say it out into the ether and like, your, your house will start talking back to you and tell you the recipe. Right. You, you know, and I think also, and 
you've done this as well, Katie, is like you have if you're going to differentiate yourself from all the other people who are doing stuff in any field, then like you have to infuse your work with your own sensibility. I see such an entrepreneurial spirit in you. Everything you just talked about, too, about, you know, a little bit of fear makes you get up and work all the harder. I have never worked harder in my life than when I started working for myself. And I consider you an entrepreneur. I I also I don't entirely understand the background or the behind the scenes fully of your show because I know you're partnered with Stitcher and and WNYC is a part of that or is that old that's old right so so i was okay. doing the show independently basically okay. out of my living room i got signed on with wnyc new york public radio produced the show in partnership with them for three years uh and then left there and came here to stitcher which has been fantastic um and so like you know then they do a lot of other great podcasts katie Couric, the longest shortest time um and so Technically speaking, like I'm producing the show in partnership with Stitcher. Um, so like you could come here and like you see the office that we're in now. Like this does not look like a, a guy in his living room. Right. Yeah. Um, this office is really beautiful. They just built out this office space. But you should have seen the old Stitcher headquarters where you used to record. What was it like? It was like uh, there were police sirens bleeding through into the studio and the microphones. <laughs> there were like exposed City. pipes yeah. and wires. <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell came in for an interview with some other show and famously looked around the room and just said, what a dump. <laughs> <laughs> she tells it like it is. Yes, she was not wrong. <laughs> you know, we got two desks over there, but I still think of myself as a small business owner. I, and I, that's how I think of you. And yeah. I think that's why I was a little like, hold up, hold up. Why am I going to this? Or not not why am I going to the office, but yeah, just reconciling those things, which actually makes total sense. You are an entrepreneur. What, what does being a part of Stitcher provide you? They work with different shows in different capacities. Like if you wanted to do the show by yourself, um, I hope I'm explaining this all right. If you just want to do the show by yourself, and hand them a finished show, then they can sell the ads for you, and they're fantastic at selling ads. Or they can produce, either they can give you some production help, or they can, or you could, in theory, be like a f- full partner, or like they could own and operate your show. There's different, you know, it, it depends a bit on the show and the situation. In my case, it means that you know I'm pretty wedded to Stitcher, and like they've been kind enough to provide. Uh, the foundation we need to create the show, and they've been very supportive of us creatively, which has been fantastic. But then they also give us the freedom to like feel like entrepreneurs. I don't ever want to lose that entrepreneurial feeling, partly because I think it motivates us, yeah. partly because I think it makes our show better because we feel the freedom to do what we want, you know, and... And, and ownership. Right. Like, if I was doing a podcast for uh, Google or Facebook... That, like, who's going to want to help the guy doing the Facebook podcast? Right. Like, nobody wants to help that guy, <laughs> yeah. you know? Whereas, like, if you're, if you're that guy that everyone knows started the podcast in his living room and is now, like, living his dream with Stitcher, then, like, that's – like, they know that you're hustling. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Sporkful is attractive to Stitcher is that they know that we're hustlers. Hustlers in the sense of working hard, not scamming people. Right, right. Um, Important distinction. Right. It's worked really well because we kind of have the best of all worlds. We have like the support of a big organization with the entrepreneurial like seat of our pants vibe. <laughs> How do you keep it quirky? It gets harder as you get older. I used to have a, a box that I kept under my bed in college called my silly hat box. What? And that was where I kept all my silly hats, Katie. <laughs> Wait, seriously? Yes. Oh, yes. You don't have one? <laughs> I have like two hats. Oh no, they're not I mean, silly. <laughs> I, I, I did study abroad in London, and I had a plastic Newcastle uh, soccer football team hat. I had a 
uh, a day glow yellow baseball cap that had like a ponytail attached to the attachment to the back. Nice. And if I put that on while I have a beard, I look exactly like Andre Agassi in oh 1989. God. You're looking at like some amount of like sort of like sympathy and, and like concern for my, my sanity. Well, I'm picturing you in all of these. At a certain point, I just wasn't wearing the hats and I got rid of them. So without the silly hat box, how are you keeping it quirky? Because I know you do, Dan. I'm not done mourning the silly hat box yet. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, keep pouting. Keep pouting. (laughs) Having kids does make you quirky in certain ways because kids find joy in things that, like, Fuddy Duddies don't. They, <laughs> they help daddies. you see new things. Like we had the carnival, like local town carnival fair in my town. We had like some rides and games and stuff. And my daughters won goldfish. It was the first time. Which to me is like a rite of passage. Like every child, like you win a goldfish at some fair, and it's like how many days will it live? They were so excited about the, like their first pet, and they brought them home, and they're like, Aww. you know, mama's here, mama's here. Like the like the fish seemed a little bit. The fish seemed. Uh, distraught at its new surroundings, <laughs> and the, my daughters are consoling the goldfish. But just like when you see very basic things in through their eyes, that makes it quirky. So I guess just sort of like just have kids, Katie. That's the secret. I'll let Connor know. That's your. <laughs> that's that's the takeaway from this podcast. Yeah, yeah. The problem is the first few years are not quirky. Mm, yeah, yeah. But you know that brings it to the fact that quirkiness isn't always easy. Sometimes you got to work at being quirky. That's right. As you do. (laughs) Dan Pashman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Katie. Dan is the man. Check out his podcast, The Sporkful. Thanks to Malai Ice Cream out of Brooklyn for sponsoring this episode. They have amazing, really fun flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream. Malai Ice Cream is a South Asian-inspired spice-forward ice cream company in New York City that's building out its first brick-and-mortar store in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. They have a pop-up store open now, so stop by Monday through Friday, 5.30 to 9.30, and Saturday and Sunday, noon to 10, to grab a scoop. If you mention this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order. The Malai pop-up is at 268 Smith Street in Cobble Hill, and it'll be going on through the rest of 2018 until its grand opening next year. Be sure to follow their Instagram at Malai underscore ice cream, M-A-L-A-I underscore ice cream. Thanks as always to my brother Brian Quinn for the theme song you hear, and I'll see you soon. But in the meantime, don't forget to keep it quirky. 